Well, hey, good evening, everybody. Glad to see you. We okay? Yes, my name is Adam. I'm a pastor here at the Neighborhood Church. You met Pastor Kathy a moment ago. We're so glad to be here together. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. That's in the second half of the Bible. It's uh, in the pew back in front of you, or it'll be on the screen. If you want to thumb through to chapter 5. That's where we'll be in a moment. As Pastor Kathy mentioned, we're in a new series in what's called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is a weird word that is taken from a Latin word that means blessed. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. But as you're turning there, I might draw your attention to these wonderful orange shirts that you see here. Today, at the neighborhood church, we were out in the neighborhood at our clothes closet. We are a church that is just shy of three years old, simply trying to live up to our name. To be a church in the neighborhood and for the neighborhood, inviting all peoples into life with God. We say in our church we're following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. We're just trying to live up to our name. And one of the things that was such a beautiful reminder this morning with a neighbor that we see each and every month, sometimes more than once a month, we pray with her, we talk with her, and she was talking with Jason and I this morning about all the pain, all the brokenness, especially in the wake of these shootings that just keep happening and we were just begging God and praying to him together with hands held tight that his kingdom would come on earth and in our neighborhood just as it would be in heaven. And she just picked up a flyer that we had brought with us today about a new ministry initiative, hopefully most of you have heard of, called the Neighborhood Table, which is something so simple as just sharing a meal together in this community. And she held up this flyer and she goes, I think things like this is what our world needs to prevent some of the craziness that we see out there. The craziness that we see that moves us to tears, that moves us in brokenness, that causes us to mourn and grieve loss. Could it be that something as simple as breaking bread together and turning neighbors, not as them, into us and turning neighbors into family? Could it be something that simple that might just change the world? Only if you believe in Jesus's upside down vision for this world. So when Jesus gathers the masses of broken, needy, hurting, desperate people, he sits down and he speaks blessed on all the wrong kind of people, even those who mourn. That's what we're going to talk about in a moment. But before I read these blesseds, before we talk about one of these blesseds in particular, I want to give you just a little vision of these Beatitudes if you did a Google search and said books on the Beatitudes, you would see titles like how to be happy. Because sometimes you can translate that word blessed as happy. Hashtag blessed. I'm happy. I got a new BMW. Hashtag blessed. You can see titles of books that say how to be a good disciple. 
in so many words. But I need to tell you, when we talk about Jesus' vision for who is blessed and how he is changing the world, we need to understand that the Beatitudes are not commanding behavior. What I mean by that is, it's not about saying, do this to get that. If the Beatitudes were attitudes to be, be sadder, then God will like you. Be poor, then you'll get everything you need. Be persecuted. That would just be some kind of cosmic vending machine where you put your religious quarter or your religious attitudes into the machine in order that God might give you these things in return. Could that be what Jesus is after? I don't think so. The Beatitudes are not about commanding behavior. Rather, the Beatitudes are about casting a kingdom vision that's upside down from the world's vision and values. Let me say it another way. The Beatitudes are not prescriptive. Take four of these and heaven will find you in the morning. They are descriptive. When you find yourself right here in the midst of sadness, poverty, brokenness, desperation, even when you're at the end of your rope, you will find yourself squarely within reach of God's blessing. Even when you are hungry, thirsting, desperate, persecuted, you are actually securely within God's kingdom. The reason why these are so important is because you need to remember when you are grieving and mourning, whether it's something like El Paso or something that happened today, you need to be reminded that right where you are, not the six-month more mature version of yourself, if you have said, Jesus, I need you, I'm with you, you may even find yourself squarely within reach of God's blessing. And you are securely within God's kingdom. This is how Jesus is able to say, you're blessed. I'm with you. I'm here. Even when it doesn't appear like it. We need to let Jesus expand our vision of who is blessed. Despite the world's evidence to the contrary. Because when you're grieving and when you're mourning... That's when people want to fix it or move you through it or maybe even question what you did to deserve it. But this is where we need Jesus to expand our vision of who is blessed despite the world's evidence to the contrary. So with all that kind of background information on the Beatitudes, on the blesseds, I want you to imagine with me, okay? Let's take our time machine back. 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus has begun his ministry, and he's walking around as a rabbi, a revolutionary, talking about God's kingdom, inviting people to follow him. If you were going to get a resume together, and you wanted the best apprentices, if you wanted somebody to work with, to be your lunch buddy, I promise you, you would not have picked who Jesus picks. He goes around and he finds fishermen, he finds thieves 
and he finds violent revolutionaries. And he says, hey, come and be with me to learn from me how to live like me. If y'all lived in a public school in these parts, you probably had the painful experience of lining up at gym and getting picked for dodgeball. We're talking about the last picked, and you know it if it was you or your friend or someone. We're talking about those guys. He picks them. He says, follow me. Be with me to learn from me how to live like me. And then he goes around with these 12 dudes following him closely on his tail, and he begins to say, guess what? The kingdom of God is right here. But he doesn't just say it, he shows it. He begins to touch the untouchables. He begins to love the unlovables. And he begins to invite them in to this reign of God. The people that were last picked by the world's standards. So this goes on for some time until finally Jesus looks over his shoulder and he's got a multitude of people behind him. He's got his 12 homeboys right there following suit. And he's got untold masses of people desperate for some kind of good news in a world where all they've heard is bad news. So Jesus goes up to the mountainside, and in those days they didn't have a music stand or a podium. They sat down, which begins to clue in all of this multitude that he's about to say something. I've heard revolutionaries talk about war. I've heard them talk about freedom. What's he going to say? They're already compelled enough to follow him. Now they're going to learn from him. So Jesus sits, and you can imagine them just leaning in. Could this be the one? Could this guy be different? And Jesus opens his mouth, and this is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then you start to feel the squirms and the looks. What is he talking about? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice or righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. In our church we say, thanks be to God. Tonight, I want to cast a kingdom vision of mourning. That would be the M-O-U-R variety. And a kingdom vision of comfort. And try not to think how uncomfortable you are in August on a Saturday afternoon. Jesus is here. We're going to be all right. You with me? Kingdom vision of mourning. Kingdom vision of comfort. That's where we're going to spend the next few moments together. But first... I need to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you've ever seen The Lion King. Okay? Keep your hands up if you saw the animated version of The Lion King. I saw it in the theater. I remember it was a very powerful moment in my life. Yes? 
Raise your hands if you've seen the new Lion King. Of course, Becky has seen the new Lion King. How many times have you seen the, just one, okay, great. We're all familiar with the Lion King. If you didn't raise your hand, you've had 25 years. I'm about to tell you, it wasn't just a big deal for me to go see it in the theater. It was a big deal because there was a hard scene in that movie. Disney is not afraid to kill off a parent. And they killed off Mr. Simba, the protagonist of The Lion King. What? I was about to say his dad. They were killed off Simba, the protagonist of The Lion King, his father, Mufasa. Everybody needs a pastor's wife to make sure they stick to it on the outline. She's like, he's already done a 10-minute intro. Now he's going to give us the whole Lion King plot. Does everyone remember the terrible scene where Mufasa dies? Okay. Simba freaks out. He runs for the hills. This dude was straight up murdered, by the way. Mufasa was murdered by Scar. Simba can't take it. He goes into exile past the elephant graveyard or whatever. <laughs> and he meets these two on the screen. Do you all remember their names? Timon and Pumbaa. Okay. What song does Timon and Pumbaa sing? Hakuna Matata. What does Hakuna Matata mean? For the rest of your days. Right? Okay. Now, pop quiz. When do they sing this song? Like five minutes after Mufasa is killed. Hey, kid. It means no worries. I saw a tweet about the new Lion King. I can't vouch for whoever sent it, but I saw it, and it made me LOL. This is what he says. He says, my favorite Lion King characters are Timon and Pumbaa, because they tell a kid who just saw his dad get murdered to just chill out. Why am I talking about this insane but catchy song? Because when Jesus opens his mouth, and sees this multitude of people who are spiritually bankrupt without a whiff of religion, poor and poor in spirit. And then he looks over here and he sees people with tears streaming down their face, facing a desperate world where they can't make rent, they can't make ends meet, they can't make sense of why their spouse has left them or their friend has passed, their parents are sick. They can't make sense of it. And Jesus effectively says, happy are the unhappy. Hakuna Matata, desperate, sorrow-bearing, grieving, mourning people, you are happy and blessed and content. And this is where the record scratches and they say, wait, what? This, I think, is why we need a kingdom vision of mourning because when you look at that word blessed, you could translate it happy, but it's got to be deeper than just chill out hakuna matata. What in the world might Jesus mean? Is he saying, get over it? Blessed are you who mourn? Just hakuna matata? Really, blessed means contented, flourishing under God's care, and like I said, even happy and joyful. What in the world does he mean? 
I think a kingdom vision of mourning starts with the realization that if you're like me, man, you just don't know how to mourn. And here's what I've observed in my own life. I want to fix it. Have you ever been in a period of mourning and grief? Someone comes alongside you. They don't know what to say, but it doesn't stop them from trying to say something. I'm the pastor that wants to have the magic bullet, text, message, figure it out, visit you in the hospital, pray the prayer, and just fix it and magic erase the grief. I've failed in this way. But if I don't try to fix mourning, sometimes I just try to hustle past it. I'm the guy that says, it's okay, hakuna matata, I'm good. Or you just want to get people back into that happy space because you want to go to Chipotle and not talk about all the hard stuff. Am I the only one? I think our culture doesn't know how to deal. We don't know how to grieve and mourn together. We need a kingdom vision. What on earth might Jesus be talking about? I was even in open share 12-step circles, and they said, don't even offer someone a box of Kleenex when they're crying. And I'm like, dude, why? They said, because what happens when they grab the box? They dab their eyes, they say, sorry, as if they shouldn't feel it. I think a kingdom vision of mourning starts by naming sometimes that we're bad at it, but I think the deeper move is to feel it. I think you need permission to feel it. And here's how Jesus models what mourning looks like. There's a story in another gospel, just a couple swipes over from Matthew, where one of his dear friends is sick and ill, basically old school version of hospice. But instead of dropping everything and rushing there, Jesus waits. He hakuna matatas it. Well, a couple days later, he visits the town where his dear friends lived, and the sister of his friend, his name was Lazarus, her, his sister runs up to meet him and says, guess what? You missed it. He died. And Jesus bears the full weight of the brokenness of one who is mourning. And Jesus begins to engage her in a conversation and he says, he will not die. This has happened so that the glory of God might be shown through him. And at first blush, you'd be forgiven if you think that Jesus is just trying to fix it. And then as he continues to make his way to his friend's tomb, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he asks his dead friend's sister, do you believe this? And then you might be forgiven for thinking that Jesus is just trying to rush past it. Hey, it's all going to be all right. I know how the ending goes. It's a happy one. But then Jesus does something really, really surprising. He sits and Jesus what? Wept. The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life sits and weeps 
I think what we're talking about, and you can go back one, Tracy, is this idea that even with the end in mind of resurrection and of life, we need to grieve with the grieving and sit for a minute with the world as it is with one eye toward what it will be. The way we can say this is mourning as we look to the morning. The one who wept in the present tense at the tomb of a dear friend is the one who will say, later, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The one who will wipe the tears is also the one who shed the tears. Do you see the difference? The Bible is the story of a suffering people trusting God for rescue. They cry out, they celebrate, they doubt, and they trust. It's a mixed bag. I want you to have permission with a kingdom vision of mourning to lay it all out there. There are psalms, poems, songs in the middle of this book that says in our sacred scriptures, every night I drench my bed with tears. We sang one of the psalms that says, how long do I keep singing? God, when will you end this racism, this hate, this violence? When can we lay down our weapons to take up the cross and live the way of the kingdom? How long are we going to keep screwing it up? How long are we going to keep suffering it? You have permission to lay it all out before God. And he hears you, he can take it, but he will also do something about it. This is the power that we see. He doesn't want us to escape. He wants us to engage. We come from a long family line of people who aren't afraid to lay it all out before God, but then they look suffering right in the eye and they dare to believe that death and sin and evil don't get the last word. But we're not afraid to cry about it right now. When our churches go on, on a Sunday morning after a Saturday afternoon when 22 people are dead and 25 are injured and don't say anything, I think we are missing our family lineage of laying it all out before God and saying, have mercy and help us and give us courage to live the alternative. To stare it straight in the face and say, this can't be God's design. We must not escape it. Our faith calls us to engage with suffering. When Amy worked at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, and we've had nurses, nurse practitioners, all at this hospital, it's what's called a level one trauma center, which means that the worst of the worst and the hardest of the hard from not just North Texas, but even parts of Oklahoma and Arkansas and beyond, when they have kids that need desperate and real hard help, they come to children's. So Amy worked there not as a nurse or a nurse practitioner, though we have people in this community that have been and are there. 
She was in what's called child life. And that department is kind of a liaison between the medical staff and the families. If you've been at Children's, they're the sweet people that bring you stuffed animals and talk to your kid in a developmentally appropriate way to help them cope with their hospital stay. They're also the people that get to walk around Dirk Nowitzki, and I would have sold my soul if I could have been there just maybe when he was there. I shouldn't say that. I'm a pastor. I'm not going to sell my soul. This is what happens when your wife is here helping you keep on track. Where were you on that one? I love Dirk, but my soul belongs to Jesus. You go tell him next time you're there. I digress. They also had a front row seat to some of the hardest and most gut-wrenching things. We prayed for a girl last week, 15 years old, just diagnosed with leukemia. It breaks your heart. And then... When they're dealing with this day in and day out, the talk around the office starts to drift toward these suffering, these painful experiences. And she will not forget what one of her coworkers said to her. She said, really, at the end of the day, all you can do is hope to just go numb to it. And I don't blame her. Robert is a paramedic knows there is a healthy degree of differentiation. There is some way in which you can be a help and have some kind of differentiation. But what she was saying, and I'm not sure she was meaning this, was effectively, no, you just got to get numb to it and get the job done. And Amy, hearing that and processing it, says, you know, I hope I never go numb to the pain and suffering and death of children. She wasn't doing that as like a high horse thing. She was doing that as a resolution in her own heart with a kingdom vision to engage and stare it straight in the face and dare to trust that Jesus might just make it up to these precious little ones. I believe the one who will wipe away every tear from people's eyes, is also the one that said, I am making all things new, and he will never waste suffering, never waste pain. Even if he's not the cause of it, he is working through it and in it and around it to bring it to good. But we should never be numb to it. We should never be numb to suffering. Surely, when we read a translation that says, happy are those who are unhappy, that can't be what Jesus means. What he means is that even in that space of mourning, know that he didn't escape it, he engaged it. We have a faith that dares to believe in the God who was not just near to the brokenhearted, as the psalmist says. He came so close to us to get his own heart broken. Do you see this? This is the gospel. He didn't want to just be near to the brokenhearted. He came to get his heart broken. Jesus, who saves a suffering world through suffering in order that he could turn the world upside down and say to the ones who sinned every one of our sins into Jesus, crucifying the one we didn't understand, crucifying the one that was leading us on a path of peace and grace and life. We crucify him so that he could absorb the sins of the world, turn the other cheek and say, Father, 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As we nailed the Son of God, the Word of God become flesh and his broken heart to the cross so that he might stretch out his arms of love to reconcile the world to himself. It's a fundamental difference. Listen to me carefully. It's a fundamental difference in a gospel that says Jesus the Christ died to reconcile an angry God to the world. Or what Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Father's heart has always longed for and been broken by a world that is in chaos and has rejected him and rejected neighbor. So he enters in and experiences poverty, depravity, illegal status, and he reconciles this broken world to himself and says, I don't just know what it feels like. I am here when you're feeling it too. I've been there, I'm with you, and I'm not just saying hakuna matata. This is the difference. Where is Jesus in the Cielo Mall? Where is Jesus in children's? Right there with them. And even if we don't see that kingdom come in the way we want it to in the present tense, if not now, then... We know that we can mourn with an eye toward the morning. This is the gospel. The one who wept is also the one who will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a martyr in Nazi Germany, calling the church to be the church that had become complicit with the racist and violent ways of the Third Reich. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke boldly and wrote powerfully about what a disciple looks like in Nazi Germany. In his book called The Cost of Discipleship, which is an interesting title because his discipleship actually cost him his life. He was murdered and martyred. He wrote these words thinking of the ones who mourn, and he calls them sorrow bearers, bearers of sorrow. And I love what he says about this when he thinks of the man of sorrows, Jesus. These disciples, hearing this beatitude, bear their sorrow in the strength of him who bears them up, who bore the whole suffering of the world upon the cross. They stand as bearers of sorrow in the fellowship of the crucified. They stand as strangers in the world in the power of him who was such a stranger to the world that it crucified him. This is their comfort. Or better still, this man is their comfort. The comforter. We have a kingdom vision of mourning that keeps an eye to the morning. We also need a kingdom vision of comfort. That's not just a principle. That's not just a verse to memorize. The comfort is a person. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But I believe that Jesus is the comforter who comforts in the present tense as well as the future tense. A kingdom vision of comfort looks like this. In Jesus, there is both a promise for comfort then... And I also believe the presence of peace now. I want you to hear me 
The one who will wipe away every tear is also the one that stands with us now. There is a comfort in the presence of the comforter, the man of sorrows. Paul, who is one of the most famous Christians, planted churches, wrote most of the New Testament, wrote this from jail. Rejoice in the Lord always. And that's when we say, uh, you're in jail, right? And he says, again, I will say, rejoice. And we say, Paul, you're crazy. And then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that's when you say again, uh, in jail? And then he goes, do not be anxious about anything. Uh, in jail? I was anxious about what I was going to have for dinner last night. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, do you know what that word petition means? It's a church word, a Bible word. Petition is a fancy way of saying, asking, asking. That's the gimme, 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 gimme prayer. It's a good prayer to pray. Because when we ask, even if it's a gimme, 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 it reveals some semblance of trust that he might actually be the one that can give something. In everything, in all of your anxiety, by prayer and petition, and even with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, how many of you have heard this next verse? It's on the screen, verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because I'm a pastor that wants to fix it. I want to move you through your morning. I want to have the magic bullet to where you can say, oh, he's a good pastor. That's not a joke. That's a serious flaw in which I struggle to be present like Jesus does. I'll send this verse, I'll pray this verse, as if I just want to rub some magic on it to say, Jesus, just download some peace on him. Where does the peace really come from? Now, let me pause and say, Jesus has and will and might and maybe is right now, washing you over with peace. He can do that. But what Paul mentions, even in jail, this peace descends upon them in the presence, in the praying, in the petitioning, in the thanksgiving. It comes in the presence of the Prince of Peace. Verse 7 starts with that word, and. Did you catch that? And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. It guards you when you come to him and lay it out and mourn and scream and holler and cry and grieve and bear sorrow even I believe in the present tense we can experience some comfort in the presence of the Prince of Peace when we lay it all out before him. Dallas Willard says it this way in his excellent book The Divine Conspiracy as we start to wind down to a close. Is it true, and he quotes an old hymn, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal? It is true. That is precisely the gospel of heaven's availability that comes to us through the Beatitudes. And you don't have to wait until you're dead. 
Jesus offers to all such people as these the present blessedness of the present kingdom, regardless of circumstances. The condition of life sought for by human beings through the ages is attained in the quietly transforming friendship of Jesus. Do you believe this? If you don't, would you try it? Friend, if you find yourself mourning, if you find yourself desperate, if you find yourself, despite all the world's evidence to the contrary, struggling to believe that you are blessed and within reach of God's blessing, securely within reach of God's kingdom, would you try the quietly transforming friendship of Jesus? who's not only near to the brokenhearted, but he himself had his heart broken. You can find peace not only in the presence of the comforter, you can also find peace in the presence of other kingdom people. So I want to close with a story that I hope is another reminder that brings it into the present tense. This week I bumped into a student that grew up in the church that Amy and I grew up in. In South Garland, we were high schoolers, college students in this church. While we were high schoolers and college students, this was a child growing up in our home church. She just recently moved back to town. We bumped into each other at the coffee shop where when I want to get work done, I never get work done because I end up bumping into people and talk to them for two hours. We're talking for two hours, and she begins to ask me, how did you come to that church anyway? I didn't know this story. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't thought about this story in like 15 years. But as I'm telling this story, God is connecting these kinds of dots. When I'm thinking about mourning, I'm thinking about comfort, and then I'm telling this story. And the story begins when the first death I ever really tangibly experienced the weight of is when I was a child, and it was my grandmother, Bobby. On my mom's side, she was the spiritual matriarch of the, my mom's side of the family. We all went to church together as a family at an Episcopal church in East Dallas. And we would all leave church together as a family to go to Sunday lunch together as a family. It's a very Texan thing to do. She was the spiritual matriarch that was kind of the glue that kept us together. She would pray over us, bless us, anoint us with oil. She would sing to us. She was really the first consciousness of Jesus in my life. She died suddenly at a restaurant in Dallas. And it was so sudden that my mom just dropped everything to rush to the hospital to maybe see her. But it was even too late. In all her franticness, she called a new friend, a woman by the name of Kenna. She called her new friend because Kenna had a kid that went to school with my brother. And she said, I'm so sorry to do this. I've got to run. My mother might be dying. Can you please pick up my son from school? So she scoops up my brother. She goes over to the middle school I was at and picks me up. And we go to their house. And it's the first time I had been in this house. And it's the first time I had met this woman, Kenna. And we're sitting there, and I'm wondering what is going on. And then 
I'm hearing the news and it just begins to creep over me and to spread through me like you felt when you receive life-changing, devastating news. So then, because we rushed over and she collected the boys, she couldn't go and help my mom get back to us. So she calls her dad. Kenna calls her dad, who is a pastor. A pastor who is the chaplain of the Garland Police Department, the fire department. He was kind of the chaplain for the whole city of Garland. This dude would be at William's Funeral Home off on Garland Road, or back when it was downtown, rather. And he would just be there on retainer when people didn't have a pastor, he would do the funeral. Whatever he was up to, he dropped it and he went to the hospital to get my mom and bring my mom home to us. And I tell this story because, yes, we wound up at their church. And, yes, God used that to mold me, form me, shape me. But what I really remember is this. I don't know a thing they said but I remembered that they were there. I don't remember what I had for dinner that night. I don't remember where we went immediately after. But what I remember is that my first memory of the sting and pain of death is also colored in the parallel memory of the warmth and goodness of the comfort and presence of God's people. I'm not even just saying that to make it some conclusion. I'm saying that because I think that even in my young age, I could see what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn, because you will be comforted even in the midst of pain and suffering and the bearing of sorrow. Our kingdom vision sees both what is and what will be, mourning even as we look to the morning. Because in Jesus, there is both a promise for comfort then and the presence of his peace now, not just with him, but with kingdom people. So may we be a church that remembers that even in our mourning, that the light of the new day will dawn. May we be a church that reminds those we meet in our families, in our neighborhoods, that there is comfort because the kingdom of God is near. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this time and space to be reminded of your goodness when the world gives us so much evidence to the contrary. So Jesus, we ask in your mercy that you would heal us, that you would bless us, that you would meet us where we are, And that you would rid us of the lie that we've got to get all our stuff together before we come to you. Remind us that you meet us where we are. Father, remind us of the story Jesus told of his Abba, his father, that was longing and looking to the horizon, wondering and waiting when his son would come home. Would we run home to you, lay it all out before you, even in the midst of our pain, to find the peace that transcends all understanding. In the strong name of Jesus, who comforts us both now and forever, amen. Amen. Jesus is teaching us the Beatitudes. 
May you hear his voice and learn into, lean into his understanding. May God grant you the vision, strength, and courage to proclaim God's message of the upside-down kingdom. Amen, and go in peace.